Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast. We're shining a light on bright ideas. And today, you guys are going to absolutely love this conversation if you love beverages. We are talking about kombucha. We're talking about tea. And you guys are, you probably know the guy that's on the podcast today, Steve Lee, founder and CEO of Wonder Drink Kombucha. He was the co-founder and CEO of Stash Tea back in the 70s and Tazo Tea, just a small brand, right? In the 90s. Steve, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I, <laughs> for, for me, for me, it all, it all began with uh, tea long before I knew what kombucha was back in the early 70s. I had been with Sears Roebuck, and at the time they were the largest retailer in the world, and I was quite intrigued with with the with the company. I was with them for eight years and moved around from various management merchandising roles. And in 1971, after being with Sears for eight years, I had the confidence to do something on my own, and I wanted to badly. <laughs> so at the time I had become interested in natural foods and at the, and at that time an emerging industry was just beginning to happen and uh it was called the natural food industry and there was a natural food store in Portland Oregon called Sunshine Natural Food and it was down the basement of an old building downtown and walking down the stairs of this in, into the uh, Sunshine Natural Food Store, and through the doors, right in front of me was a display uh, named the Gates of Eden. And in the Gates of Eden were all kinds of teas and botanicals and herbal infusions, and the smell of incense, uh, the smell of natural foods uh, just overwhelmed me. (laughs) And, And I was so into it all of a sudden. That uh, that that became a direction. It just happened. It just happened to be that my perception at the time was that uh, teas had a higher margin than other products in in that particular store, and I perceived that they probably did in all stores, which wasn't exactly true, but it was enough to get started with. And uh, a few of us decided that we would start a company and. Uh, we started working with the designer to come up with a name for the company uh, and started working on a package concept. And uh, it was a pretty simple idea. And that was that we would put bags of uh, herbal infusion, loose herbal infusion, like chamomile, peppermint, uh, in little mini grit bags. We would put them inside of a wooden box. There was a mail order catalog. It was a beautiful box. It was made in Coos Bay, Oregon, had a slide top. And when the consumer finished with the tea, they could use the box for rolling joints. <laughs> Is that why it's called the Stash Tea Company? <laughs> At the time, we were only three months into this project. We still didn't have a name. 
but but it was coming together rather quickly. And we we had been working with an old high school friend of mine who was a graphic designer, and he it just wasn't working. They hadn't gotten it. And uh, we went. Uh, one of the partners took me to another designer who had just left a large uh, advertising firm in Portland, and we walked into a studio explained what we wanted explained where we wanted to go with this tea company which was going to be a mail order company exclusively just like sears roebuck sure. had done sure and uh uh we explained to him that uh we wanted this box to be like a a rolling box for for marijuana after it was finished and you could use the mini grip bags everything was sure. recyclable you oh, could wow. use the mini wow. use the mini grip bags for, uh, for for having your own marijuana and so on and so forth and he said you want to smoke a joint <laughs> and we said well sure <laughs> and seriously after a few moments he sat silently and he said stash tea company and we just went wow <laughs> done <laughs> yeah yeah i'll never forget the feeling that is so that hilarious. was that was stash t's beginning <laughs> we actually had about twenty five hundred dollars uh i had left sears roebuck at that time uh there were a few of us we didn't know much about the business at all right how did you figure that part out and figure out how do you even make product well it was simple in the sense that at the time there were uh, i mean we went through a lot of iterations of sure. this, with this brand and we had uh little metal stands that went into gift shops that had little mini grip bags of loose tea on it we had the wooden boxes uh which we sold in the mail order cat which we sold through the mail we ran a full page ad in the oregonian on the hottest day of the year with 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 all these herbal infusions and naming them and naming their function and the ad flopped and we were stuck with all these wood boxes and we had and we had to start selling them in order to get the money back out of them and we started selling into the gift shops and one thing led to another and then we had racks of loose tea on little stands and so on uh and then we tried to create a tea bag box uh that was packed by a private label tea packer and uh we went into the grocery tra trade and that that didn't make it and uh finally we hired we hired a fella to sell loose tea into the food service industry which was uh restaurants and so on and he came back and said look here's what we have to do we have to scrap all this loose tea uh approach find somebody to pack tea bags for us uh put it in a cardboard container and sell it to college campuses one thing led to another we found a private label packer that packed the tea bags for us uh which was to answer one of your questions and as as it turned out, they blended the teas for us in the beginning, so it was an easy operation for us. One stop simply, shop, nice. Yeah, yep. we just ordered uh, cases of tea from a tea packing operation in Bristol, Pennsylvania, and had it shipped across the country. And we repacked into these cardboard 
containers that held 450 tea bags and sold them to food service to the college cap- campuses who put them on on the food service racks. Food distributors, was, right? Yeah, that was that was the beginning, uh, and it was so successful that the marketing manager of Saga Foods at at the which was a food service contract theater at the time, servicing colleges and business campuses, uh, called me from Texas and said, have you ever thought about doing a promotion on colleges, in colleges, with, with your brand? And his, his idea, it always comes back to the stash idea, his idea was to make little denim bags and write and print stencil stash across the bags right <laughs> and and uh, uh and, and put little tea bags in it and same concept the kids could use it for their marijuana and so on and so forth got it so he he, 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 <laughs> he suggested yeah he suggested we do a, a national program through the college campuses that they dealt with and we did and immediately put us nationwide in food wow. service We dropped everything else we were doing at the time. Uh, And focused on that. And focused on that. We also had another company that we started simultaneously with Stash, and that was called Universal Tea. And that was going to be the company that supplied the botanicals, uh, the herbs and spices and teas to Stash so that we could be a vertically integrated company. And... uh, we sold that company to our bookkeeper at the time uh, for forty-five thousand dollars, and uh, so so that we could focus on the brand stash tea in the food service industry, which we were only learning about, and that's what we ended up doing for the next five years until we were able to take in a large investor and uh, branch out from food service into retail. And I, I, I want to ask you a question or two on that. I know this is you know, a, a couple companies ago, but like just that decision to focus. One of the things I, I see as we talk to different entrepreneurs on this podcast is that's often not easy. Um, and the tendency is to get excited about all the different variations and uh, line extensions and kind of the next thing. Was that an easy choice for you guys, given that you saw this channel just going crazy? Or like, what did that look like? That's a really good question because you're absolutely right. Uh, every company that I've been involved with uh, in in the tea industry, there's been five now. We always had a tendency to go into broader territories, geographical territories, and broader product lines, and uh, we always ended up cutting back and focusing not only on product lines, but on the geographical territorials territories as well. Uh, and that's what we did with stash at that time. That was why we got rid of universal tea company. Uh, but at the same time I had several partners and the partners didn't want to drop universal tea. And it was just through, through consensus that we finally came up with uh, enough reason to do it and to focus on stash. And that was, what happened uh so we we uh, went nationwide in the food service industry and uh, at one point we were asked by several retailers if we'd ever 
thought about selling retail and we said, well, we have, but we just haven't had the right opportunity yet. And so several retailers, large retailers took us on and that uh, allowed us to take a larger look at our marketing strategy, which was at the time only selling in food service. And we had a little message on the back of our tea bag and we were selling millions of tea bags every month. The little message said, send for our free mail order catalog, uh, which people would need people, that retail stores. Right. Well, that was the thought in the beginning. This was before we were uh, invited to be in the retail trade by Fred Meyer company up in, up in Portland. But the, the, uh, our strategy ended up being that we, had all these mail order customers in cities all over the country. And we just created a package that or a presentation that went out to the grocery store chains that were selling all these restaurants through these distributors in your town. And, and we have this many thousand mail order customers that are buying directly from us. This was after six years of focusing on this concept uh, and that's the reason why you should put our product in your grocery chain. And that was how we got into the grocery trade after we had been invited in by Fred Meyer. And uh, that was Stash's success program. You know, you, you, you say six years. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people get anxious when they're not finding that big win or the success in the first year, two, three. I mean, I, that's probably and I, as I was reading and doing homework on you and these companies, Stash, Tazo, and now um, um, Wonder Drink. Um, that it it's not something that's an overnight success. You have to be persistent around it. Exactly. Well, it took us twenty one years with a brand Stash T. Wow. And, and <laughs> twenty one years. I, yeah. I mean, geez. As I as I I mean to take it from beginning to when we sold it. Right. And. Uh, I look back on that and thought, boy, we could have done that in five years, ten years. <laughs> because of what you learned later, right? I mean, that's... But, but yeah, but that's only hindsight. I mean, sure. we don't know these things until we've gone through what we go through. But I think it's what we go through that makes us what we are. No question. Talk, yeah, Steve, talk about, you know, you, you had the selling event and, and, and we could spend probably a couple hours just on stash, but how did how did the transition happen from that to Tazo? And like, what did that look like? I know you were a co-founder with that brand as well. We sold Stash T outright to uh, Yamamoto Yama, which was our business partner at the time. Uh, they were a minority partner and we sold the company to them. And uh, uh, we none of us had non-competes. So, so we, uh, <laughs> shockingly, <laughs> we started, you know, immediately we started talking about another concept that was a higher price tea, a better quality tea, uh, different marketing program, uh, immediately within the first 30 days. And, uh, for the first time, uh, well, I should say differently than when we had started stash tea with about $2,500, uh, we had what we needed to start a company with and we felt we had enough expertise to go forward with a new idea so we had gotten together with a uh with with one of the uh uh early partners of Wyden and Kennedy 
uh, an advertising firm in in Portland, uh, a graphic design company called uh, Sandstrom Design, and uh, that was really the creation of Tazo uh, and the launch six and or seven months later. Did you was the approach different in terms of packaging, in terms of what market you went after? You know, obviously different. Maybe a tier price. If you're pricing at a higher price range, you're maybe attracting different type of consumer. What did that look like, and how did you guys decide where to focus? Well, we thought the important thing was to go after the food service industry again because really that's a brand builder for any food or beverage product. To have that product be in a restaurant that has a certain environment that speaks to the consumer in a certain brand positioning way. And uh, uh, usually a restaurant won't carry more than one tea. So there's no competition. It's just a, it's just a, like a stage setting for a, for a brand. And we didn't know that with Stash Tea when we started this, but we learned it as we went along. And so that's how we approached the marketplace with, with Tazo. Uh, you know, graphically, it had a whole another approach to Tazo. I mean, Tazo was built on the was graphically and from a copywriting point of view, built on the idea that Merlin meets Marco Polo on the crossroads of existence. <laughs> wow, that's and, cool. And and uh, that was everything was built from that idea. And that was just a conversation that, or I should say, it was just it was just dialogue between two guys as they were walking down a street one day and uh, that was what came out of it so that was the way we presented it to uh the fella at widen kennedy and uh, and the fella at sandstrom design and they they picked up from there and did wonderful things with copywriting and and with design and uh, and then the the sales approach was to do as I was talking about in regards to the food service industry. So the other thing that was really important to us at that time was that it had to be the right kind of a restaurant. It couldn't just be any restaurant. Uh, it had to be a, a restaurant that really spoke to the consumer in a certain way. And uh, that was how we did it. We just, we just uh, researched the right restaurants that we wanted to be in and, and, uh, sold them and after enough food service operations were carrying Tazo, we approached the retail trade in pretty pretty much the same way. So only only without the mail order, which we weren't uh, doing in in a large number. And for those listening that may not be as familiar with the beverage industry, so in the food service space, talking at restaurants, et cetera, um in, in places that you would you know find fountain drinks as well as some bottle can drinks they're typically distributors and you've seen them you've passed them like cisco and others on the road that you know, go to those locations and drop off lots of things same with college campuses and whatnot so i guess my question here steve is how did did were you able to say to the distributor you know only deliver to these accounts or were you guys the sales in and they were just the distribution in? like how did the, how does that work well, in the beginning, like in, in Portland and Seattle, which were our hometowns, uh, at least Portland was, we just sold the restaurants directly, told them what we were doing, who we were. There was no question about our experience. Right. They, of they, course they, not. Happily, they, they loved the product and they happily took it on. And, and uh, within a matter of uh, weeks, actually, the, uh, the 
going to a food service distributor in Portland and Seattle and getting them to pick up the product and distribute to that particular food Got service okay. operation was was easy. And that and that and that's pretty much an ironclad way to, to get manage. into the food service to Got get it. into the distributors. Sure. Uh, because you know, as each year goes by, uh, these distributors are carrying more and more products. It's harder and harder for them to take on new products and and so on so the story has to be good there has to be a perceived demand or or they just don't they don't want to carry it no and and fast forwarding how did you go from you know it sounds like you got off to a fast start with tazo and my guess is in comparison to stash you guys were months and years ahead very quickly because of what you had learned with stash yeah but there are also other tea companies that were doing innovative right, stuff more competition were, right yeah. yeah there was but you know it was like the rising tide idea sure so so i mean celestial was was very large at that time they were a hundred million dollar company at least uh you know there were other brands that were doing innovative things so you know we were all out there and uh it was a it was a very not only an attractive market but it was a, a market that that knew more about tea than they'd ever known before i'm talking about not only the the consumer i'm talking about the food service operator and and the retailers for 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 some reason uh the tea category had always seemed to have more demand more sh grocery shelf space or natural food store space or specialty food store space than other categories that, that's just a point of view that I had. Uh, and then from a, you know, from a food service point of view, it's very important for good restaurants to serve good tea, to serve it properly, to make sure that the, it had been infused in boiling water. If it were a tea and, and, uh, le less, less than a boil, if it were a herbal infusion and, and, to you know, have the right, uh, utensils, the right, uh, cups and saucers and so on sure well and then you know fast forwarding a bit on this one but um how did the relationship with starbucks evolve or start and and, and how did that come about with you guys uh, well in the beginning we <laughs> we we had uh after stash was sold uh we immediately start, started we we had a relationship with howard schultz and uh and uh and a, and the marketing director of starbucks at that time starbucks was a lot smaller than they are now right it's and true, uh, so yep uh they said how would you like to make a tea for us and we said oh <laughs> sure so we put together this convoluted proposal it took us months actually cut three months uh oh to build a tea factory in portland and uh uh taza would be our i'm sorry starbucks would be our first customer and uh and then we could build a brand we didn't even have the name Tazo. you didn't have Tazo time. yet got it no we didn't have Tazo yet wow. uh so within five months uh starbucks went a different direction they bought a private label tea from a, another supplier uh informed us they weren't interested in putting that kind of money into portland and it was uh, actually a, a godsend because we were able to quickly Pivot. focus on <laughs> right. building our own brand sure 
and that's what exactly what we did. That was all in year one. That was wow. the first six months wow. of Cosmo's existence, uh, just Crazy. months after Stash had been sold. And so we built the brand, uh, and in five years, Tazo, I'm sorry, Starbucks was interested in Tazo. They weren't happy with the brand that with the private label, been, yep. the, the private label brand that they were buying, and uh, <laughs> they uh, made a overture, and we started talking, and the rest is history. They just made us an offer that seemed to make sense. <laughs> And we we sold it to them. Wow! And <laughs> so at that point, it, it sold. Did you think another tea company, or were you kind of like done with the tea? And I, we can get into your trips to Russia and kombucha and whatnot. But did did you know what was next at that point for you, or was with no. you in your team? Uh, no, no, I never did. Uh, after one was sold, it was just. You know, they all sort of overlapped, uh, and uh, one thing led to another, and and uh, we had we had another company called Teaports that we had actually started back in the beginning with Stash Tea Company. It was going to be three companies. It was going to be Teaports that was going to import uh, products, Universal that was going to uh, uh, be the wholesaler for large numbers of of bulk botanicals and teas and then it was going to be stash tea that was the brand this perfectly integrated company well we never did anything with teaports with stash tea uh i told you about universal tea we ended up selling that uh, and then after stash was sold simultaneously with doing tazo uh we two of us started operating teaports in russia along with owning Tazo and its development. And it was in Russia that I discovered kombucha. And uh, uh, that's how Teaports got involved. And that's how I got into Russia and, and, and did what we did with, ended up doing what we did with kombucha. Yeah. So um, you, I was reading um, another kind of interview with you and it, it shared the number of trips you had been making to Russia and that you learned about the sparkling fermented tea and you grew fascinated by it and decided to come back and, and found Wonder Drink in 1999. Talk about the story of being in Russia and discovering kombucha and, and share with our audience what kombucha is. Well, I didn't know what kombucha was at this time. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about 1995. Right. Uh, Tazo was uh, two years old at that time, and I was fascinated with Russia. Uh, for me, it was one of the greatest adventures I ever had, and it was the first time I went through a absolute cultural cultural shock. To, sure, to be in Russia at that at that particular time because it had just come out of uh, being the Soviet Union. Of course, so many things didn't work there, and and. Uh, and most of the time I was going to St. Petersburg in the early years and it was such a beautiful city. And we had uh, partners there that we had developed. Uh, we had tea that was being uh, produced down in Sri Lanka and in Indonesia, tea bags and loose tea. We had it shipped into Petersburg uh, and they were selling it to retail stores. And we actually had a bit of a market share. 
wow. in St. Petersburg, wow. which was all pretty fascinating. And at the time, I was uh, it was common to rent an apartment from a from a person or a family, and they would move out for two, three days or a week. And uh, uh, it was an inexpensive. It was it was inexpensive, but it was a lot of money to them. And uh, you know, just the whole thing was. I, I was totally immersed in the Russian culture at that time wow. and, and very, very fascinated with it. So in 1995, one of our partners invited me to dinner and uh, his mother lived with him and she had, she was making kombucha and, and uh, I just happened to see it on the way to the loo one. <laughs> went down this hallway and I, I saw what was her bedroom and this, uh, what stood out was this gallon glass jug with a look like cheesecloth over the top that was right wow. by the door and it was easy to see. So when I got back, I asked her about it and she explained through her son uh, in Russian that it was mushroom tea, mushroom which is what the Russians, which is what the, the, the Russians called kombucha. And, uh, Nobody really knows where any of these names came from, kombucha or mushroom tea or what. But the, the mushroom tea in Russia was 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 a common uh, was common, and that's because the kombucha culture could be perceived as looking like a mushroom. Got it. That that was where it came from. So it's actually a culture. It's a symbiotic relationship mm. between yeast and bacteria. Sure. And as long as it's kept alive and and propagates, it can go on nobody knows for sure indefinitely. Wow. And she and she uh, Mrs. Lasovsky explained all this to me through her son and wow. I was so fascinated with this. And I you know, I'm 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 getting it as she's telling me, but I'm not really getting it until she finally tells me that that she uh she'd been making this for decades and i said well what do you mean you've been making a deck well every week i i make a new batch i take out take out the culture i pull it in half i give half to a friend uh it's a gelatin looking affair and uh, uh i use the other half to make my next week's brew i brew the tea i add the sugar i put the culture back into the top of the jug put the cheesecloth over the top and it goes through a fermentation process for a week. And I'm just going, wow. wow I mean, this, is the, this is, this She's is the like manufacturing, manufacturing product, right? I know this is the manufacturing of a, of a product that I had yes. never known about. And here it is. It's made with tea. So all these years in the tea industry and I didn't even know that. Wow. So then, then she told me uh, what gave me chills. And that was that she got her original culture kombucha culture from her great aunt in Siberia in 1939 and wow. then she'd been making kombucha ever since and I just was absolutely fascinated with this idea and I somewhere in me I knew this was going to be a product that I was going to get involved with we were doing tea ports as I just mentioned to you in Russia at the time and we would continue to do that until 1998 we were doing Tazo which was quite a quite a process at that at that point uh investors were putting their money in and we were growing sure. rapidly and uh uh 
finally in 1998, uh, Tazo came, I'm sorry, Starbucks came along <laughs> and, and that process took like six, seven, eight months, uh, to complete. Sure. And, uh, after it was completed, I started looking at the kombucha industry. Wow. And that was, that was how it all began. So it really took five years from the time I came across it until, until, well, almost five years, 99 after Tazo had been sold and we weren't doing business in Russia any longer because of, of the, of the economy there. And, uh, kombucha was the next thing. Wow. So you decide to start wonder drink in 99. Do, was there any concern that, you know, tea is a known item <laughs> you know, to the consumer but when I say the word kombucha, like even there's probably people listening to this podcast that are like, yeah, I think I've seen like a bottle of that. Um, you know what I mean? Like just getting consumers familiar with it. How did that play out as you look to start this company? Well, it was tough uh, in some ways. In other ways, it was uh, we were quite encouraged because kombucha had been around for a while. And just because I hadn't heard of it, 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 it was well known in the natural food trade and it had it had uh it had sort of grown up in the natural food trade to a degree um kombucha's taste can range from tart to sour to tangy like a crisp apple cider vinegar or bubbly switchel um and it's just unbelievable you start reading about the uh the benefits of this this product and and the interesting effects of it and did you know all of that when you got this one started or was it these things you discovered later or into, you know, as you got into product development? Yeah, it, we, we knew very little other than what I've told you already about how to, how to brew it. I had come back from Russia in 1995 and, and, uh, uh Mrs. Lasovsky had given me a piece of the culture and she wrapped it in tinfoil oh, wow. and it. I brought it back on the airplane with me. Oh, that's so uh, cool. It was not an issue at all. The stewardess just put it in the, uh, <laughs> the in the refrigerator and sure. And there it was. Yeah. Wow. So I had been, I had been brewing it myself, uh, had become enthralled with the product and the way it made me feel. So we knew a little bit, but the big thing was that in 1999, there had been a company called Ucha Brew that had actually started in Portland in 1995. Uh, and I had come across this company at a uh, an event in the park blocks. And I had called the company and asked if they were left a voicemail asking if they were interested in investment. I never got a call back, and I finally, four years later, came in contact with one of the founders and told him my story that I tried to invest in their company, and uh, uh, they were in the process of going bankrupt at the time. So I tried to put together a deal with this particular partner and the remains of the company uh, that invested all their money in, in equipment to brew the product and they had what ended up being an issue for every kombucha brand. And that was, they produced a, a, a batch of kombucha that had turned to alcohol in the bottles 
that long after it gone after it had been distributed. To, after it had been distributed into grocery stores in Got it. Oregon and Washington, uh, the bottles were exploding on the shelf. It was all recalled, and it was just enough to put the company out of business. So uh, we weren't able to put together any a deal, and uh, from that moment on, I putting together what ended up being Wonder Drink, and we launched it a year later uh, after developing it with some of the same people that we had used for for the Tazo brand. And uh, we ended up pasteurizing our kombucha, thinking that was the way that we should go, and uh, uh, creating what we thought was a great tasting kombucha. And to answer your question, we started selling to stores right away and to food service operations right away. And it was a real uh, mixed result. This was after I had made a trip up and down the West Coast asking retailers, distributors that if there was a kombucha brand available, would they buy it? And there really was only one brand available at that time. Uh, which is GT Dave's, and uh, uh, he was a tiny little brand at that time. Absolutely no threat to me, in my perception. And uh, uh, I came back, and we were quite encouraged to put t- together something as fast as we could and get out there in the marketplace. And uh, that's what we ended up doing. Uh, uh, we decided that we would pasteurize because one of our founders, one of the Wonder Drink founders, was a was, as it turned out, was one of the early founders of the Ucha Brew brand that I told you about. And he was, he is a microbiologist, and he was convinced that you cannot make a kombucha raw without having an alcohol content show up somewhere in the distribution process. So that's why we made a pasteurized product. Now, I mean, to jump forward very quickly, uh, GT Dave became the largest kombucha brand in the world. <laughs> and uh, and it, it's, it's still raw, and he's been quite successful with this concept. And at the, same, at the same time, in 2010, there was a national recall for all kombuchas. And ours was the only one that stayed on the shelves nationwide uh, because we were pasteurized. And uh, consequently, the, it changed the kombucha industry dramatically. Uh, some of the larger brands even went out of business. Uh, all the brands, in order to get back onto the grocery shelves six months later, had to uh, had to qualify with the uh, uh FDA, and uh, that was quite a quite a process. Consequently, all the raw kombuchas had to change their formula. Some actually went to being a pasteurized product, and then it became a whole different kind of a industry. Wow! And um, where did the name Wonder Drink come from? We had five names that we that were developed five brand concepts and uh, five design concepts and uh, sure. <laughs> wonder drink was the one we chose. Wow. I love it. It's very catchy. Um, 
Gosh, so many great benefits to this this type of beverage. Um, it has acetic acid, supports gut health, uh, tea, polyphenols, which are antioxidants, um, better than soda, safe for kids, organic, vegan, gluten-free, et cetera. I mean, just amazing. You guys, if you haven't tried this, it's, it's um, amazing. Um, Steve, I, I just it's so cool to hear these stories. You've been in different companies and you've dealt with the challenges and the ups and downs of those companies. You know, for our entrepreneurs listening, what would be, you know, two or three pieces of advice that you would give that, you know, the things that made you successful or your team successful, you where you've seen others struggle? What would be those two or three pieces of advice? Well, I think perseverance is the biggest thing. It's so easy to get discouraged. And uh to just hold yourself above that and continue on is, I think, the main thing. I mean, it's hard to describe it any other way than that. Uh, finance is always a tough uh, challenge. Uh, if the idea is a good one and the product is a good one uh, with the right finance, develop a brand by putting it in the right places and and uh, continuing that process uh, I think you know having a small group of advisors that the staff works with is very important and I think uh, uh, the wider experience that the advisors, or the board of directors have the better. That's that's a good list. Yeah. No, I love I love those. And so helpful. And did you find those like the advisors for you came over time? You know what I mean? You had to sift through or kind of figure out over the companies or did you have those from the beginning? I mean, these five tea companies were built with lots of people involved. Uh, I mean, it's never just one or two people. It's always a whole group of people that contribute to the success of something. And, you know, for me, it was a, a 46 year experience. So over that period of time, there were a lot of people that I came in contact with and I was attracted to and ended up feeling like, uh, this person's a mentor or this person's is one of the smartest people I've met in a long time. And, I think that was how it happened. No, that's uh, that's great, um, and and I think helpful in the persistence thing. I think is one thing a common theme I hear from other entrepreneurs. Um, for those listening, you can check out uh, Wonder Drink Kombucha at wonderdrink.com. And Steve has an incredible book, Kombucha Revolution: Seventy Five Recipes for Homemade Brews, Fixers, Elixirs, and Mixers. I love the rhyme. <laughs> Steve, it's so it's been so great having you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your stories um, and your advice. It's been really great having you on the show. Yeah, thank you, Justin. It was a pleasure talking with you. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contenderbrands.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that 
every winner started as a contender. 